a book of the Bible, and we're going to actually study the life of the main character in it. Let me give you a little background to the story of and the title of Thriving in Babylon. Uh, so I was a part of a gathering of pastors in San Diego, California a couple years ago. And, uh, and this, the, the facilitator of that gathering is Larry Osborne. And we use quite a few books of Larry in our leadership realms here at LEFC. And, uh, and Larry was talking about his new book at the time uh, that had just come out prior to the presidential election. And, uh, and he was talking about that in his experience uh, that he was noticing that people were regularly complaining about the culture in America, complaining about how people are more anger, angry and divided, and, uh, and they regularly were judging the culture, but rarely were they speaking anything that would influence the culture. And, uh, and so he felt like that in his own church, and then there were several of us pastors who were saying, yeah, I would say that's a common experience, is that we tend to complain about where we see America going. Many of us do not like what we see happening in our country. And, and we tend to think then, as a result, there's nothing I can do about it. That ship has sailed. And that is a dangerous way to go about living your life in America as a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus says he has come to bring to him a people that were in need of a savior, which all men have fallen short of the glory of God and are in need of his good work. But if the people who bear his name and are the ones that are to share about that good news operate as if the battle is lost, then those who are in need of hearing about that gospel will continue to be ignorant of that which could actually change their life. So the study of Daniel is literally looking at a young man who uh, uh, basically did not establish this whole venture in his life. It was all the result of other people's makings. Now goes to a foreign country and influences three kings and kingdoms. Not because he had a vision to do that, but simply because he had an attitude and a mission of serving God regardless of what happens around him. And then it was simply a byproduct of that that literally gave him platform to affect other people around him. Now his oikos, which is a term that the Greeks used around the time of Christ to describe their sphere of influence or those people that you do life with. Uh, you know, for Daniel, his oikos was in Jerusalem and then it became Babylon. It changed completely. Those he had interactions with was completely different. But the question then becomes, how am I going to operate within that? How am I going to uh, adapt? Am I going to become Babylonian or do I maintain my identity as a follower of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? It is an interesting thing that when you begin to look at the life of Daniel and you consider all that is accomplished in his life, all goes back to a decision that happened the first day he's in Babylon. So that's where we'll go to the text today. We're going to be in two primary passages. It's in the book of 2 Kings chapter 20, and then we'll be in Daniel chapter 1. If you do not have a Bible, our ushers would be glad to provide you one. They're coming up the aisle at this moment. Just simply put your hand up, and they'll give one to you. 
If you do not own a Bible, please take this as a gift from us. So 2 Kings chapter 20, which will be on page 368 in those Bibles that are being handed out, is the context by why Daniel is even in Babylon at all. And so we're going to get context to understand why Daniel could have easily made his story look very different. But instead, we know his story because his life was something unique and challenging to us today, living in our own Babylon. So here's the context. In 2 Kings chapter 20, you have a season of time where Israel had become a divided kingdom. There was the northern kingdom known as Israel, and there was the southern kingdom known as Judah. This happened shortly after Solomon was king, who was the son of David, and, uh, and continued for many different uh, generations. But by the time Hezekiah becomes king of Judah, there is only one kingdom left. The, the northern kingdom of Israel had been conquered and dispersed and no longer existed. Uh, but kingdom of Judah was still present around Jerusalem and to the south. So at this time, Hezekiah, who was a righteous king, he literally served God well. He, just, he tore down all these altars that were worshiping foreign gods. He made sure the worship of the temple was honoring to God and not honoring false gods. He had done quite well as the king. But he became sick. As a result of his illness, he's about to die. God sends him a message saying, your life will be taken by this illness. So I want you to get your house in order and prepare for your departure. Hezekiah responds with, I don't want to die. I want to live and begs God for more time. I mean, who of us has been given the message that you're about to die? Get your house in order. So he was given a gift, quite frankly, to prepare for his end. But instead of receiving it as a gift, he argued with God and asked for more time. God relented and gave him that, that greater time. And what you, you can find out if you study the life of Hezekiah, which we won't do today, is that his leftover time that he was given and granted post his sickness was not utilized to the glory of God. In fact, it was riddled with mistakes. So this illness has now just left him, and that's where we are picking up in the text, starting in verse 12 of chapter 20. It says, At that time, Marduk, Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift, because he had heard of Hezekiah's illness. Hezekiah received the envoys and showed them all that was in the storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices and the fine oil, the fine olive oil, his armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah, the prophet, went to King Hezekiah and asked, what did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, they came from Babylon. Then the prophet asked, what did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There is nothing among my treasures that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord. 
The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your predecessors have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied. For he thought, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? Let me stop there. Who says that? What kind of a person makes a huge mistake and then hears that the consequences of that mistake is that the entire kingdom is going to fail? And not only fail, you're going to be taken as captives to a foreign country and some of his own offspring will be serving in the palace of this foreign king as eunuchs. Who does this? Hezekiah had been such a righteous man for so long and led so well. Why now would he do something so foolish and prideful to take an enemy kingdom on a tour of his inner household. That's not smart to show off what you own. He literally opened the vault and showed all that was in his treasures. You could only imagine just what the foreign kings and envoys thought. They're rich. And they're much smaller than us. We could take this for ourselves. They play coy and they just continue to go through and, and be led on this tour of all that they see. Hezekiah is proud to show off what he has and that such important people has come to give him well wishes. But he doesn't just show off his possessions. He also shows off the temple. And you'll discover as we go into the book of Daniel that even the, the temple was robbed and sacked, and taken its possessions to Babylon. But then this moment happens where the prophet Isaiah, who's written quite a prophecy where we can learn about Jesus Christ from the prophet Isaiah, but in this moment, he's sent as a messenger directly to Hezekiah. And he's confronting Hezekiah for his foolish, prideful acts for displaying everything that they own to Babylonians. And, and then to say that the city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. Not only the walls and your palace, but even the temple are going to be destroyed and knocked over by this foreign king. And not just that, Hezekiah, you've caused harm to your descendants. For your grandchildren will become eunuchs for the king of Babylon. Now, let me just describe something here. Now, I don't want to assume for a moment that everybody here knows what a eunuch is. So let me talk through the process in detail. <laughs> Dr. Mishan, are you in the room? Why don't you come on up? <laughs> no, uh, to become a eunuch literally is this. It is to take a man and to strip them of their ability to have children. It emasculates them, castrates them, would be another term in the English language. And as a result, they lose their identity as a man, a patriarch, 
uh, the ability to have the joy of having children. You can imagine it was very humbling and embarrassing. Now, why would such a thing be done to descendants of a king? You see, it was commonplace that when one kingdom takes over another kingdom, that they would take the royal princes of the conquer kingdom who had been educated very well, who were usually of superior looks, and they would take and make them part of their new kingdom, basically transforming them from what they used to be to something different. But out of fear, out of fear of them having the ability to overthrow the new kingdom, they would make sure that they would have no offspring. So, They would castrate them. They would become eunuchs to serve the king so the king could let them work among all their wives. The king could let them work among their daughters and not be fearful for what they might do. So this story would not be strange to hear that potentially someday your kingdom is going to be conquered and your royal children will be taken and become eunuchs for a new king. Now, if any of us had received such a word that we had made a royal mistake, a significant mistake, and we were to hear that your town, your city is going to be destroyed because of your mistake, people were going to die because of your mistake, and your own grandchildren are going to suffer humiliation because of your mistake, you would think that Hezekiah's response would be, of wailing, of crying out to God, don't let it happen. But instead, Hezekiah says, the Lord of the Lord you have spoken is good, for he thought, in my lifetime, it's good. There'll be peace and security, so I'm fine. That just tells you where the heart of Hezekiah had become and gone. He didn't care at this point other than himself that it was going to be good for him. Now here's the challenge. When a king speaks, it's recorded. When a prophet speaks, it was recorded. So these words and these things said and spoken and on display were known by the generations coming. So which generation is going to be the generation that suffers at the hand of the Babylonians? 100 years later, five generations Later, you have Daniel. Daniel is five generations from Hezekiah, and it is in his lifetime that they're going to suffer the consequences of a great-grandfather they never met. The, the, the things that were going to happen in his life were truly not of his making, but yes, nonetheless, he was going to experience horrific things done to him and, be, and therefore done around him. He was going to see carnage, people die, and he was also going to have to serve something that would repudiate him, that would cause him to get sick to his stomach to say, I have to worship a new God. Not of his making, but nonetheless, his life. So now let's look about how Daniel handled this situation in Daniel chapter 1 you could turn there and I believe it's on page 826 in the Bibles that were handed out Daniel chapter 1 so the moments come 
Daniel and his friends that had studied the written articles of their predecessors, the kings, knew this day was going to happen. They're sitting in the palace with their city besieged by Babylon. They see what's coming. They know that if they live beyond the siege, that they would be taken as eunuchs to serve a foreign king. So do you wish for death? Or do you hope to survive? Those are the questions they're asking themselves as their city is surrounded. Now let's look at the moment. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the third year, the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Along with some of the articles from the temple of God, these he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put, the, put the, in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them then the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were trained for three years, and after that then, they were to enter the king's service. So the temple, Jerusalem, the walls, were all sacked, and the possessions, including the princes of Judah, were taken to Babylon. A few select royal sons were chosen to serve in the palace of the king of Babylon. The qualifications or the checklist that Ashpenaz was to use was that they needed to be smart, check, good-looking, check, well-built, check, quick learners, check, and I'm not talking about myself. When you start looking at the list and you think, it would be a curse in this situation to be chosen because you're smart, good-looking, well-built, and a quick learner. But that's how they identified Daniel and his cousins or brothers. We do not know. But nonetheless, they were part of the royal line that came from Hezekiah. So due to this selection, they're chosen. You are going to serve in the palace. And they knew what that meant. That meant that they were about to be humiliated. So after their humiliation, then they were to go into being trained for the customs and practices of the Babylonian palace and the culture. You see, they are not to stand out as being different. They need to look Babylonian. They need to behave Babylonian. Because this was, after all, the headquarters of Babylonia. So therefore, they needed to embrace this new culture in order to serve the king. They were also given new names. Daniel was given the name Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, the name Abednego. All of this happened, keep in mind, all of this happened because of the sins of a grandfather. Some of you walked into this room 
victims of other people's sins. And some of you have been able to work beyond that victimization. Others of you still cling to it. All of us here have usually have experienced some form of consequence, not of our making. So we can relate when there are moments that something happens to you that was created by somebody else and it's not fair. But this is extreme. A grandfather they've never met and they are now emasculated and serving in a foreign place away from home and separated from their families and now they have to serve in a culture they do not know and they're going to be culturized into it. How would you feel if you were Daniel? What would be your attitude to the Babylonians? What would be your attitude to your predecessors, especially Hezekiah? What would be your attitude to those beside you? Can you imagine the discussions between Daniel and his friends? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Can you imagine the discussions they had? This happened to us because of our grandfather. They could be angry. And as a result, their attitudes would probably hinder those around them, above, beside, and below. But let's ask an even deeper question. They were aware of what Hezekiah did that brought this on, but they're also aware that it was God that said, this is what's going to happen. Jerusalem will be sacked, and your offspring will be made to be eunuchs. And they could be looking at God saying, why my generation? Why couldn't this have been the generation after us? Why couldn't this have been the generation three times after us? So you could imagine this could affect their relationship with God, where blame would certainly be uh, uh, justifiable and, and anger being common and, or even expected. You see, what has happened here is still common to the human experience. When somebody makes a mistake and the, the rest of us suffer the consequences of it. Think of the company that was stolen, and I say money stolen, from within a company that was very notable in our area. It was a huge company. People from this church were employees for that company. Only to discover that the president and a bookkeeper had been fleecing the company. You guys know the name. People lost their jobs. Customers lost money, of which I was one. We suffered the consequences, some of us more than others, because of the decisions and the sins of another. So rarely can you live life and escape the idea of where we suffer at the hands of somebody else's decision. It's not of our making. But the question becomes, what do you do with it? What becomes your attitude? What is your vision for how to go forward? Does it affect you and you play the victim card every day of the rest of your life? Or do you make a decision to resolve to go differently from that? When I was thinking through this text and, and thinking through some of the moments in my life where I've 
suffered because of the sins of another. And I say that lightly because there's greater suffering than I've experienced. But nonetheless, I've had experiences where I am going through something difficult, not because I made the bad decision, somebody else did. And I started thinking through the inspiring stories that I've been around where somebody had something more greater than I in being suffer and in suffering consequences that they did not make, and yet thrived through it. And no greater story can I come up with than this one. There was a book that I read when I was a young kid called Through Gates of Splendor. Some of you know the story of where these five men went from America to the remote jungles of South America. And there they served God to bring the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the one who can change your life, bring you hope, and help you have a relationship with God. They brought that good news to the rural tribes that are in the deepest dark jungle. Tribes that had never met white people. And clearly had never heard the name Jesus. Those five men, you'll see some pictures here. There are three of them right there within days. And then there's the five. What they did is they were living among a tribe that had embraced them. And they were able to share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. And the tribe began to follow after Jesus but as they were living among this tribe, they discovered that from hearing from them that there's this tribe even deeper into the jungle that everybody feared, the Alcas. Everybody feared them. Nobody would go to that part of the jungle lest they would lose their life. They were headhunters, literally. And so you didn't dare go near. Well, one of these men was a pilot. And, and so they began to use the plane to fly over this part of the jungle. And they saw where these people were. And they noticed that near their village was this space next to a river where they could land a plane. It was basically a beach. So over time, they began dropping things, gifts to these people to let them know that the people in the plane are friendly. And eventually they landed the plane on that space and would hang out there hoping that the tribal members would come out to them. And they did this repeatedly with no one coming out of the bush. Then finally, one comes out. That's the picture of the one that came out. And they began to build a relationship with him and talk with him. And so they be began to decide that there, this is the opportunity where we can go and share the gospel. So all the men gathered in the plane and they landed. All their wives and their children were back with the other tribe. As time went on, the expected return of the plane with the five men did not happen. They began to worry, and so they called the authorities to find out what had happened. And so they got another plane, and, and as they're flying over the area where this tribe was, they see the plane parked on the beachhead, but they also saw bodies lying in a pool of blood in the water and on the beach. They had been killed, speared to death by the tribe. They had given gifts and had tried to show kindness and were bringing the news, uh, good news of God to them. The wives were devastated. They had lost their husbands. Their children are now fatherless. What do you do? 
You came being obedient to God and going and bringing the gospel to this tribe only to have your husband killed? What do you think the response was? There was anger, I'm sure. There was sadness. And I am sure that the the temptation was to come back to America and grieve. How could God let this happen? After all, we were serving him. One person in particular was the wife of Jim Elliott. Her name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth decided to stay. A couple other women did the same. They stayed with the tribe that had welcomed them. Over time, that tribe had two people from the Alcas, two women that had come into the tribe and they were welcomed and embraced as friends. And eventually those two women went back to the Alcas, beginning to share that these white people are actually friendly. Within time, an invitation came for the women to go and be with the Alcas. Within two years of Jim's death, Elizabeth and her three-year-old daughter were living with the tribe of the Alcas, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. Elizabeth had to go through, I'm sure, a series of questions. Is this safe for me to take my child, the one thing left in this world that I love so dearly, and go to the people that actually killed her father and my husband? We don't know a whole lot about all the emotions that went with it, but we do know this, is Elizabeth went in and did not bring judgment, but continued to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to that tribe. And as a result, that tribe became followers of Jesus, many of them. It's a great story. But what happens if she chooses bitterness? What if she chooses victimization? That I was robbed of my husband, serving God, and now that God has robbed me. What if she had said, I hate God. I'm angry with God. God does not really care for those who actually are trying to serve him. God did not see us in this moment. God did not protect my husband. Can you imagine? But whatever moments that might have happened for her, she kept choosing a path of what their calling was. Bring the good news of Jesus Christ to the people of Ecuador. Daniel has a choice. He has a choice that now that I'm in Babylon... I can become Babylonian to the fullest degree. My God has let me down, so I might as well worship the new gods of Babylonia. He could also choose to be embittered. He could choose to be unhelpful. But I think you're going to find very quickly that a decision that he made on his first day would change the course of history. Let's begin by reading in verse 8. It says, But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now God has caused the official to show favor and compassion to uh, Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. 
Why should, I, uh, why should he see you looking worse than the other men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Then Daniel said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. So the four young, these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel, in particular, could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. Which, as we go further into Daniel, you'll know God uses greatly. So you have a situation here where Daniel is given his first test. They've been emasculated. They're now going to serve the king, but they're going to be made into Babylonians. They're going to take on the culture. Now, he doesn't fight everything about their culture, but he chose to take a stand with the food they were going to be given. You see, there was a diet that was, that, that was orchestrated that you'll read in the early parts of the Old Testament that was considered the diet that God had given specifically to the Jew. And they wanted to honor that because that was part of their identity. And so they didn't want to lose their identity as a follower of God, as an Israelite. And so what did Daniel do? He chose his identity as an Israelite in God first. But then, this is key, he worked with the system of the Babylonians to accomplish that. He sought permission. You see, he understood that there was a greater system at play. This guard was merely operating under the direction of Ashpenaz, and Ashpenaz directly under the leadership of the king. So there was a system at play. And Daniel knew that it was best to operate within the system, but he did so holding to certain values and principles. So he asked for permission. And then with that, he proposed a test of which path will be superior, to which the guard agreed. Now, interestingly enough, so he, because of the attitude of Daniel, operating with submission to the authority, sought permission, he's now gaining influence. And I want you to hear that. He's, he's now establishing a relationship. And so in this context, he may not like what the Babylonians stand for, but he is humble enough to know where to respond in submission. So his attitude is winning over the heart of this guard. So this test is really a test to show, is what Daniel's speaking about worthy of being respected? It's in God's hands. Daniel cannot control in 10 days if he will look better than those other men that were eating of the royal food of the king. But the 10-day test proved that God's direction was superior. And as a result, you see in verse 17, that God then elevated them in the eyes of their peers. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
or Belteshazzar and those three names, you are now looked at as the superior ones among all the wise court. All of those who are to provide wisdom to the king. God elevated them. Now, what's interesting at this point, you do not see a message of God to Daniel. You see no discussion between God and Daniel. You don't hear God, you don't see Daniel hearing from God saying, don't worry, I got your back. Don't worry, in 10 days, this is going to happen. Don't worry that if you honor me, I will honor you. You don't see any of that. You just see Daniel making a decision to go forward honoring God. In fact, the key word in all of this is found in verse 8. Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Daniel resolved. So, having said that, there was a decision that was rooted in Daniel day one as to who his king would actually be. And that was God himself. And then he was savvy enough to understand that there's an earthly king that doesn't know that God. And so he is going to honor the king of kings and then somehow show honor enough to the the lower king to receive favor. And there's something to learn from this that can help us in our culture today. Because each of us has that oikos, that sphere of influence, that place where we can influence others in a major way. And the question is, how are you utilizing your influence? Because you have a decision to make. You can decide that you are a victim of this change of society. Christians are being treated poorly by the courts. Christians aren't being honored by the media. Christians aren't being honored uh, by those in, in, that work and create business rules. They don't like you to share your faith. Even though the rules and laws of the land do not say you can't share your faith. But yet companies have said that. You can choose to become the victim and just become angry. Or you can choose to say, I respond to something greater. So in this lesson from Daniel, I would say the thing you see in day one is that Daniel did not choose a mentality of being a victim. He did not choose the mentality of being a victim. He didn't blame his grandfather. He didn't complain to God about the unfairness. And he didn't dwell on the questions of why me, why my generation? Because quite frankly, while victim, he is truly a victim. He is truly a victim. This is not of his making. But where victimization becomes a negative thing in a person's life is when they choose to blame. And they live under that, blaming every day their situation. The victim who chooses to remain the victim also complains about the unfairness of their situation. And they never stop complaining. And the victim who chooses to remain the victim always asks the question, why me? Why me? Daniel did not play the victim card, even though he was truly a victim. Secondly, he resolved and he didn't hesitate. You see, resolve is an is a inner decision to say I am planting my flag here I am going this direction hesitation would say and ask the question 
well, what if? What if I do that and they start putting me in prison and I don't get any food at all? What if the king gets mad and I get killed anyway? What if? In the end of the day, this causes harm to my family members or my friends. What if? You get the point? Daniel didn't stay with the what ifs. He simply resolved that it is better to resolve my direction than to hesitate and consider the what ifs. For in him, principle stood over fear. Hear this. The principle of following after God stood over his fear of the what ifs. That's where resolve comes from. Which then the principle is this. Number three, he feared God more than he did man. He feared God more than he did man. You see, he chose God's path in spite of what was seemingly a no way out situation. In the face of a powerful earthly authority, he chose to submit to a divine authority rather than an earthly authority. And then he also lived by faith even when there was no evidence. We've got to fear God more than we fear man. We've got to fear God more than we fear man. And lastly, what we need to learn from Daniel, which I think is often lost, because many in Christendom, too often or not, when Christians do resolve to hold the truth, they do so with the wrong attitude. They do so with the wrong attitude. You see, Daniel's attitude never wavered from that which was godly. He held firmly to the principles there before him. And as a result, because his attitudes and his principles and his fear of God stood first, he was given the opportunity to then be able to have influence over three kings and kingdoms in a 70-year span. Our actions and attitudes matter. So let's pray. So God, I just say in this moment that it's very easy It's very easy to play the victim card and to miss out on the opportunities of influence. So God, give us that resolve and to avoid the victimization and playing that victim card that really renders us ineffective. But Lord, help us to resolve because we fear you and we hold to your principles and we do so with an attitude that is winsome and can affect, yes, even a king. So God, give us that kind of favor with those around us that our attitudes and our principles and our fear of God will overflow in showing the love that we have for them and as a result, we'll come to Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.